Uh, thank you so much. That was beautiful music. Love came for me. Uh, we welcome you again today on our Religious Liberty Sabbath. Um, it's good to see you all here. Uh, if you were not here for the first service, uh, that has now been put on our YouTube page for the church. We're talking about men and pornography. Uh, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, uh, we'll be gathering back here. Uh, we have one hour for lunch, so you have to really wolf it down quickly, um, like a fueling gas at a gas station. Um, but at 2 o'clock, we will be discussing questions of conscience in the military. Uh, we'll be having updates on the Supreme Court. And at 3 o'clock, uh, we have the director of the Michigan Anti-Human Trafficking Network coming uh, to speak to us for an hour about the realities of human trafficking in Michigan, uh, how you can recognize it, and what you can do about it. So uh, please uh, prayerfully plan to be with us uh, during the afternoon program. Uh, our sermon today is entitled Truth, Tragedy, and Transgenderism, and as you can guess from the title, this is a, serpent, a sermon uh, that has had uh, more than the usual care and attention put into its preparation. Um, we're living in a world that is changing very fast around us. Uh, there have been three revolutions in American history, the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and the Sexual Revolution. And what we're witnessing is the flowering of that third revolution in our society today. Um, I recognize that um, many of us here may know people who identify as being in the transgender community. And uh, for those of you who are, or those of you who identify as such, I want to say up front that God loves you, and he wishes for you to receive the gift of eternal life. That is without question. I recognize this is a difficult topic, and um, normally I like to move around the pulpit and the platform here, but today I will not be moving around quite so much. Uh, I'm also aware of the fact that people watch you on YouTube and then they post vicious attacks on you, and uh, words have meaning, and so I need to be careful with what I say today. So let's bow our heads and invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. Father, <clears throat> you have promised that if any is lacking in wisdom, they should ask, not doubting, that they shall receive. And indeed, they will receive. So today, Father, as you blessed the children of Israel with a tribe that was particularly gifted with the understanding of the times in which they lived. So today, Father, we ask for the gifting of the understanding of the times in which we live today. An understanding, Father, that allows us to make sense of what is happening an understanding that allows us to respond with grace and truth, as did Jesus when he came to this world. So, Father, I pray for the outpouring of your Spirit in our hearts this morning. I pray for the anointing of your Spirit upon my heart, my mind, and upon my tongue. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you will be glorified in all that happens here today. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I was on a plane just before Christmas, two years ago. I was flying into SeaTac Airport near Seattle. And um, I was reading a book on the papacy. And there was a young lady sitting next to me. And uh, I realized after about half an hour into the flight that she was kind of reading the book with me. And <clears throat> so I, I realized that, you know, I could hold the book like this or I could kind of twist it around like this so she could see. And eventually, I kind of held the book wide open so she could see everything I was reading. And uh, when she'd nod her head when she'd finished, and then we could move on to the next page. <laughs> and so um, it's one of those kind of awkward things. Um, and so, um, you know, when I went to the restroom, you know, she had to wait. When she went to the restroom, I stopped reading. 
And when she came back, we could pick up where we left off. To get, we left off. When, when I'd finished the book, or when we'd finished that book together, we were about to descend into SeaTac Airport, and, um, and we got talking, and uh, she asked me why I was reading a book on the papacy, and uh, I explained a few things to her. And uh, so I asked her what she did, and she was a student at some university in, in Washington State. Uh, she was studying gender studies. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I said, well, well, tell me more. And so she was starting to get really evangelical about gender theory and uh, all this kind of stuff, you see. And um, she was talking and talking and talking, and so I, I decided to put her to the test. And I said, uh, excuse me, but... Um, uh, I, I'm actually a lady. Uh, she kind of stopped. And uh, I said, you do believe that, don't you? She said, well, I, I'm not so sure. I said, I'm a woman. And she looked at me. I said, well, uh, do you accept that I'm a woman? Or are you filled with hate? And she kind of looked at me and says, well, I guess if you think you're a woman, you're a woman. I said, uh, I'm actually six foot tall and a woman. Do you accept that? And she kind of went silent, and there was silence on the seat next to me as well. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm a six-foot-tall woman. Um, she looked at me, I, I said, do you accept this? And she said, well, well, I, 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 I guess so. I said, I'm actually a six-foot-tall woman from China. <laughs> and uh, she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, are you a bigot, or do you accept I'm a six-foot-tall lady from China? Uh, there was silence in the rows in front and behind at this stage. <laughs> I then said, um, I'm actually an African grey parrot. I'm trans-species. And she looked at me and said, that's why I can talk with you. African grey parrots can talk. I said, are you a bigot, or do you accept that I'm an African grey parrot? And as a parrot, I don't have to submit an IRS tax return every year. And not only that, as a parrot, I'm part of a protected species, and so that you, the taxpayer, should pay for my housing and for my food. Um, we were bumping through some turbulence coming into SeaTac at that moment, uh, metaphorically and metaphysically. And um, we, we carried on talking, and the absurdity of her logic, her position, was kind of becoming clear to her. As we were coming into land, uh, we started talking about what I do, I explained I'm a minister of the gospel, and I was going to a place where there was deliverance ministry expected, and she said, oh, I believe in demons. She says, I have a demon. I said, oh, really? She said, yes. She says, I read tarot cards for people. I tell their futures. She says, I have the tarot cards in my carry-on. I'm going to do a reading with somebody. And I said, well, you know, those demons will kill you. She said, oh, I know. She says, they've killed my friends, but I'm still alive. She says, the demons won't hurt me. I control my demons. I said, no, they don't. You, they control you and one day they will destroy you and their intention is not to give you power or knowledge today which is the basic attraction of the occult their attempt is to destroy you and so we sat in silence and so I switched to the gospel and I said did you know that Jesus Christ came to seek and save out the lost and there was silence and I quoted some more passages to her and when we were coming into land um, I gave her my card I said look I said I know you're involved in the occult but here's my card, and if you accept it, you're giving me permission to pray for you every day. I'll be praying that Jesus Christ will nullify your magic, that he will turn your magic back upon you, that your magic will be of no effect, that what the demons disclose to you will, will, be of, will, will not come true, and that ultimately you'll be saved in God's kingdom. And so she sat there for a 
It seemed a long while. And eventually she said, I'll take your card. She took my card. And I've never met her again. I've never heard from her. But she is a young lady who is being marinated in the latest flowering, the, the flowering of the sexual revolution in America, which is the meeting place of the occult and rebellion against God. And uh, she has no idea of the spiritual danger in which she's living. Now, I'm talking about this topic today because I have two kids who are growing up and I know what this culture is saying to them. I'm not going to talk today about the length of your dress or whether you should have a short back and sides in the pulpit or not. Because um, it, it, uh, there was one theologian made up a word called Weltanschauung. It means worldview. Worldview became a very famous view among theologians. I want to suggest another word today. It's a Schwerpunkt. It's a German word. It means the center of gravity. It also means the focal point for attack. Where is the Schwerpunkt in the church today? Where is Satan attacking the church? He's not attacking us on questions of music or dress or food or taste. He's attacking us through the LGBTQ movement. It's affecting our schools. Let's be honest about it. It's affecting our churches. It's affecting how generations relate to each other within our church today. And the younger generation has a very different view to the older generations. So I want to talk today about this because this is Satan's Schwerpunkt. This is where he's attacking the church today. And as I discuss these issues with people, I discover that unlike women's ordination, where people are either for or against, um, in the issue of transgenderism, there's general confusion. Like, where is this coming from? Like, it's all around us, but how did this suddenly happen? So I'm not speaking into an, an, a, an angry debate in the Adventist church. I'm speaking here because, A, God wants us to understand the times in which we live, so that, secondly, we can respond meaningfully to people who are struggling with these, with these problems. The... Uh, so, um, I'm going to be very careful in what I say today. I'm going to begin by affirming the gospel of God's love, and grace, grace and mercy given to each one of us in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Under Christ's lordship, we approach this question of the transgender movement from a position of fundamental equality and solidarity, for we are all poor lost sinners without hope of salvation except through the mercy offered us through Jesus on Calvary. And in a church today that exists only by the grace of God, there is no place for pride or the tearing down of others, as if our own supposed righteousness was our passport to heaven. So therefore we respond today to every child of God who experiences the tragedy of dysphoria, gender dysphoria, or identifies as being transgender with nothing but love and compassion. And we are affirming today the promise of renewal and eternal life to all who look to Jesus Christ in faith. We are to love all people as ourselves, not just only the nice people. And we are to treat all people in a manner in which we ourselves would wish to be treated. With this in mind, then, we're going to look today at the, the broader philosophical movements happening in American society. Where is this transgenderism coming from? Well, in June 26, 2015, there was a landmark case, many of us are aware of it, uh, between the U.S. Supreme Court called Obergfeld versus Hodges, and June 26, 2015, it was decided that same-sex couples have the right to marriage under the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And that night, the White House, there it is there, that was lit up in the rainbow flag of the LGBTQ movement. And at a subsequent press conference, the president said, I didn't have the chance to comment on how good the White House looked in rainbow colors, to see people gathered in the evening on a beautiful summer night and to feel whole, and to feel accepted, and to feel that they had a right to love. That was pretty cool. That was a good thing. 
end of quote. And having brought through same-sex marriage into American society, not through the legislature, but through the judiciary, the president then pivoted to the next wave of the sexual revolution, that is, the transgender ideology. And so in May 2013, May 13, 2016, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education sent a letter entitled, Dear Colleague, to all the nation's public schools. It set out the new policy on gender identity defined in the letter as, quote, an individual's internal sense of gender. Schools must now allow students to, quote, participate in sex-segregated activities and access sex-segregated facilities consistent with their gender identity because these federal agencies would now treat a student's gender identity as the student's sex for the purposes of, of enforcing Title IX. Now, Title IX was passed in 1972 of the Education Amendments, and it was intended to protect women and children in the area of education and sports in particular, and to ensure that women and girls had equal access to education and to sport. Transgender ideologues in the mid-2015 or so started insisting that anything less than full uh, access to the sex-specific intimate facility of one's choice. That's a long phrase. I recognize it. What they're saying is um, a man who identifies as a woman must be allowed access to the girls' changing room. Any denial of that access will be a transphobic denial of their civil rights and equality before the law. To be granted these accommodations, a student only needs to declare a, quote, internal sense of gender, end quote, contrary to their biological sex. Not only that... But schools would be forbidden, so schools would not be allowed to require such students to have a medical diagnosis, undergo any medical treatment, or produce a birth certificate or other ID document before treating them consistent with their gender identity. Let me be clear about this. If I drop off, um, if you have a son and he drops off at school as a boy, you think he's a boy, and he's going on a camp out, um, let's say an eighth grade trip, and when they go to the eighth grade trip and they go to, let's say, a swimming, swimming pool, the boy simply says to the teacher, I identify as a girl, and he must be then allowed as a teenage boy to go and change with the teenage girls. You cannot ask for any identification, any proof of the transgender status. That is, in itself is viewed as being transphobic. Um, as a parent of a daughter, I do have a problem with this. In September, 20, September 2016... The Department of Housing and Urban Development, just before the presidential election that year, finalized a new gender identity rule for equal access to the HUD housing program. It eliminated the equal access rule uh, and eliminated the exemption for single-sex emergency shelters with common sleeping areas or bathrooms. Services for refuge, women seeking refuge, women who are homeless, women who are battered, women who are abused, runaway wives, women who are um, escaping an abusive relationship, women who have been raped, women who have been abused in various ways, now are required to share common sleeping areas with men who identify as women. This does not help the women's mental health. Uh, when you have common showering areas, common toilet facilities, um, common sleeping areas, um, there is a legal case going on right now in Alaska which is questioned on this very issue. Um, can a man who identifies as a woman, can he insist that he sleep with the women in a women's shelter? Um, again, as a father of a daughter, I would say no to that, but this is what the Obama administration was forcing um, across the United States when they were still in office. So, what exactly, though, is transgenderism? Let's go back to basics. Biological sex is identified by the organization of an organism for sexual reproduction. 
Now, organisms exist at multiple levels, but they're all characterized by the integrated, integrated functions of the parts for the greater whole. Male and female organisms have different parts that are functionally integrated for the sake of their whole and for the sake of a larger purpose, that is, reproductive purposes. Biological sex is identified by the organization of an organism for sexual reproduction. Males donate genetic materials, the females receive it, then the females gestate that and out comes a child. Now this is actually fixed in our genes, XX and XY. XY is the male, as the Y chromosome ordinarily carries the SRY gene, that is the sex-determining region on Y gene, which directs the formation of the male testes. Now for six weeks after conception, uh, there is no differentiation between male or female in the, in the womb. But in the seventh week, the SRY gene kicks into action and initiates the formation of testicular differentiation. Aye, that's when you can see this as a boy, but not before the seventh week there. When puberty begins, different hormones are produced, and it results in significant differences in male and female bodies, including in the size of the body, the shape of the body, bone length and density, fat distribution, musculature and various organs, including the brain, and those differences are profoundly consequential for our physical and mental health, our response to pain, and our experience of reproduction, maturing, and aging. Now, in the physical development process, there are well-known disorders of sexual development, DSDs. They can result in, in ambiguous external genitalia, the incomplete development of reproductive organs, or the formation of two sets of sex organs. Um, these are generally caused by chromosomal or hormonal defects, and they are not a third sex like male, female, and DSD, but they are a pathology in the development of an otherwise healthy male or female body. If you buy a car and it has three wheels instead of four, and one of the wheels is missing, you don't have a new kind of um, product. You simply have a car that's defective. And a DSD is the defective development of a normally healthy human being. The people with disorders of sexual development are often known as um, intersex individuals. They manifest a wide variety of medical conditions that are medically diagnosable. Some are not obvious at birth, and some are life-threatening, such as CAH. Some conditions will be watched for the possible development of cancer dysplastic gonads and undescended testes, and all need parental supervision and support. Now, that is DSD, Disorders of Sexual Development. But then what is transgenderism? Well, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as DSM, it's the handbook, the Bible for psychiatrists and psychologists. We're in the fifth version right now. It defines gender dysphoria as an incongruence between one's experienced slash expressed gender and assigned gender, in conjunction with clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Now, read the language carefully. It says assigned gender. Note that word. It's a crucial phrase. This is a significant difference from the previous DSM, which was the DSM-4, which used the term gender identity disorder, and which recognized that the disconnection between physical reality and subjective self-understanding is a matter of profound psychological concern. Why did this change take place in the DSM manual from 4 to 5? Well, this is the reality. Medical professionals across the West have been browbeaten and railroaded into changing their diagnoses and their definitions, not because of clinical evidence, but because of ideological pressure. 
Those who adapt to the new ideology receive funding. Those who do not adapt to the new ideology lose their license to practice, they lose their position, they lose their right to publish. There is huge pressure on the medical community from transgender ideologues to force these changes through. And the language is also ideological, it is not medical, because the DSM defines transgender as assigned gender rather than biological sex. Do you see the difference? Gender is now considered to be assigned at birth by the pediatrician or the OBGYN. You know, out comes the baby. Oh, it's a boy. Well, that's the gender that is now being assigned. We no longer talk about your biological sex at birth. They are now talking about your assigned gender. And if you have an agenda and a gender assigned to you at birth, that leaves open the possibility for a child to believe that they were misgendered and they are, in fact, of another gender. Do you follow the logic? So rather than saying that you have a biological sex at birth, you now have an assigned gender. The American Psychological Association has kind of caught up with the ideology here in the last 20 years, and they say that a gender identity is, quote, a person's internal sense of being male, female, or something else, end quote. Um, which, is, which again leaves open the possibility that there are multiple genders out there. Um, within the American Psychological Association. Now, the recommended treatment for those who, who complain of this dissonance between their, their biological reality and their sense of who they are, their gender and um, identity, is a four-stage transition. The first transition is known as the social transition. That involves changes in your gender expression and role, so um, how you express yourself in society, uh, your preferred pronoun, for instance. Um, you know, please call me by this pronoun rather than by this pronoun, um, the dress you wear, and, and helping the person live as if they were a member of the other sex. That's the first stage. You then have the psychotherapy stage. So after you have the social transition, somebody goes through a psychotherapy process that, that's helped to alleviate the negative impact of stigma in society, to alleviate internalized transphobia, our own sense of, revul of revulsion, that something isn't right with me and to improve one's sense of one's own body image. The third stage is hormone therapy, which exists to feminize or to masculinize the body, uh, the provision of drugs, uh, testosterone if you're a girl, transitioning to a boy, um, estrogen and other drugs if you're transitioning from male to female, and finally there is surgery. That is the last stage to uh, chop off or add bits and pieces so that you can now live in the body of your assigned or chosen gender, the gender that you believe you really belong to. Um, in this stage, uh, people become infertile. So when we put little children on, on puberty blockers, and when we take little children, and they're little children now, are going through this process. When we help them go through this process, by the time they're 18 or 19, they are infertile. They can never have children. Regardless of their confusion growing up as to who they are, this is an irrevocable state where we take children to. They become infertile. Now that's describing the process, but there are some profound philosophical problems with the transgender ideology. There are five questions you may ask. How precisely does a biological male come to the conclusion that he is a woman? Nobody knows. Nobody can explain. It's purely a subjective sense of who I am today. If he arrives at this conclusion based on the fact that he feels like a woman, how does a biological male know what it, what it feels like to be a biological female? Don't laugh, this is an honest question. These are questions that 
ideologues cannot answer. How does a biological male know what it feels like to be a biological female? Nobody knows. Nobody can explain. Again, it's purely in the eye of the beholder. I feel like it, therefore I must be this. Thirdly, what exactly is a female feeling? Do you know what a female feeling is? Do you know what it means to feel like a, a female? Nobody knows. Nobody can explain. You cannot put a female feeling in a test tube. You cannot buy a female feeling. You cannot market it. Um, you cannot drink it. Nobody knows what a female feeling is. But this is part of the essence of the, tran of the transgender ideology. Uh, they all have a female feeling if you're going from male to female. Fourthly, in what objective sense do those feelings make you a woman instead of a feminized man? It's a good question. To which... There is no answer because there is no objectivity about the transgender movement. Fifthly, if gender is truly a social construct, we're going to come on to that in a minute with, the, with second, third, and fourth wave feminism, but if gender is truly a social construct and a woman is not defined by her DNA, by her chromosomes, by her biology, by her physiology, by her anatomy, by reproductive organs, her thoughts or feelings, what exactly then is a woman? You see, the moment you say, I'm a trans woman, you have to say that the word woman has no definition. It's a word that's meaningless in order to make that transition. Because if a woman is not defined by her genetics or by her, chrom uh, her chromosomes uh, in, her, in, her, in her body, if she's not defined physiologically, psychologically, or by reproductive organs, what exactly is a woman? And so as we talk about I'm a trans woman, in the process of saying I'm a trans woman, I have to empty the word woman of any meaning in order to say that I'm a trans woman. So you're really saying I'm a trans nothing. There is no definition. Because if you mo the moment you define what a real woman is, you can't have a trans woman. Does that, do you follow the logic? You cannot say I'm a trans woman and I expect me to understand what you mean by woman because in the process of being the trans, you've had to empty the word woman of any objective reality or any boundaries of what you mean by woman. The word woman is a meaningless concept in the sexual revolution. The concept or definition of woman is a stripped of all meaning in transgender ideology. To be a trans woman, therefore, is a meaningless concept because transgender ideology denies any definition of what it means to be a woman. At its core, the transgender ideology claims that feelings determine reality and everybody else must keep up with everyone's feelings, which fluctuate back and forth through the day or else you are a hate-filled bigot. So... Uh, let's just uh, back up here. When the letter went out from the Department of Education to all the public schools in America, they said that gender is what you think you are. There's no medical diagnosis required to say I'm transgender. There's no psychological evaluation required to say I'm transgender. There's no diagnosis, there's no medical or psychological evidence. You simply say, I am transgender and you must accept this. And so it is self-diagnosed and parental involvement under Obama's rules was expressly prohibited if the child came to school as a boy but identified as a girl during the school hours. Therefore, intersex or disorders of sexual development is a medical category. Gender dysphoria is a psychological category. And transgender is an ideological category. If there's nothing you remember from today's sermon, is this slide here. DSD is a medical category which you can be diagnosed with by a doctor. Gender dysphoria is a psychological category. It's the difference between your self-understanding of who I am and the reality of my biological body. 
But transgender, because it does not require any kind of assessment or diagnosis, is neither psychological nor medical nor psychiatric. It is a political ideological category with no basis in medicine, physiology, or biological reality. If you don't take anything from today's sermon, remember that slide. Medical category, psychological category, or an ideological category. And in totalitarian fashion, transgender activists ignore or silence those who have gender dysphoria, who transitioned from male to female or female to male, while in the throes of immature puberty and during their teenage years, and yet to have come with life maturity to profoundly regret that decision. And there are many people who've gone through the transition who then profoundly reject the transition, but nobody speaks about that. Because once they've gone through the transition, you can't go back. You are now infertile. You cannot have a child. Perhaps most tragically, transgender activists ignore the most reliable clinical evidence that shows that over 80% of children who complain of gender dysphoria overcome that condition with appropriate counseling and psychological support as they go through their teens. So with all these internal contradictions, how did the transgender ideology come about? Where did it come from? Has it, it doesn't just arrive in a vacuum. Where does it come from? And to look at the roots of the transgender movement, we need to go back to the sexual revolution in America. It's based in the four movements of feminism. In 1792, Mary Wollstonecraft asserted in, quote, a vindication of the rights of women, that the natural rights of man should apply to women. The natural rights have no sex. And I think most of us would agree with this. Um, a century later, John Stuart Mill wrote a book called The Subjection of Women. He criticized the way that women were taught to accept a, quote, subordinate status. I think most of us would agree with that. But then in uh, 1848, there was a conference at Seneca Falls out of which came first wave feminism. It had deep roots in spiritualism. And first wave feminists argued for basic legal equality for, for women and for men, for more control over their own lives, the abolition of slavery, the right for women to retain property in marriage, and possibly even the right to vote in the future. They were the forerunners of the suffragettes. Uh, but they did have deep roots in the spiritualist movement. There was a parallel movement in America among Christian women, uh, such as Hannah Moore, Frances Willard, and Claire Booth Luce. They, followed, they founded the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, WCTU, and they mobilized for the betterment of women and men across American society. But by the 1960s, uh, feminists were not happy with the progress they'd made, and so in the 1960s, we move to second-wave feminism. They were not happy with how women exercised their newly found rights, they argued that society was conditioning women to internalize their own subjugation. Now, second-wave feminism, the writers are avowedly atheist, secular, and anti-Christian in nature. What do second-wave feminists argue for? They argue for the right to use birth control, opposition to sex discrimination laws, female self-actualization only being possible when freed from the realities of the tyranny of childbirth, Therefore, abortion on demand is the holy grail of second-wave feminists for the lesbian lifestyle and for the elimination of the nuclear family. We'll come back to the female actualization in a moment. A very famous writer called Simone de Beauvoir wrote the book The Second Sex, and she said that one is not born, but rather one becomes a woman. In other words, society and culture teaches girls to think of themselves as the second sex, defined by their subjugation to the first sex, that is the male sex. 
Later in 1963, a very famous book was produced called The Feminine Mystique, sometimes known as The Feminist Mistake. A very famous book. If you've never read it, you want to understand American society, you may want to read this book. Uh, Betty Friedan wrote this book. Uh, America allegedly produces, and I quote, millions of young mothers who stop their growth and education short of identity. The feminine mystique has succeeded in burying millions of American women alive. Now, not literally, but what she's saying is that um, because women bear children, children hold a woman back from achieving her full actualization and full potential. Therefore, for a woman to achieve her full potential, she must be liberated from the tyranny of childbirth. Hence, abortion is all important to second-wave feminists. This is also the genesis of the transgender movement in the 1960s, the false concept that the real you is somehow separate to the biological you. This is where it starts in the 1960s with second-wave feminism, and that for me to achieve my full potential and self-actualization, I must be separating myself from my biological reality. For second-wave feminists, that means abortion on demand. It comes to mean transgenderism in the, in the early 2000s. Uh, thus, the transgender movement is actually returned to ancient uh, pagan thought. A very famous writer called Shulamith Firestone, Firestone uh, uh, took these feminist ideas, their logical conclusion, in the book called The Dialectic of Sex. She was a Marxist, as much of today's social justice warriors are without realizing it. She used Marxist terminology to call for a sexual revolution by the sexual underclass, with the aim to, of eliminating all distinctions between the sexes. And to do this, she argued, women must seize control of the means of reproduction. Quote, the reproduction of the species by one sex for the benefits of both will be replaced by, or at least the option of, artificial reproduction. I'm not sure how many of you would agree to that. The tyranny of the biological family would be broken. Quote, that's from the famous writer Shulamith Firestone. Um, Simone de Beauvoir actually put it in pretty stark terms. She wrote that the family must be abolished. So the sexual revolution really took off in American popular culture in the 60s with Woodstock, hippies, flower power, uh, the pill, and free love. And the transgender movement is really the illegitimate daughter of second, gen second generation or second wave feminism. Both share the same underlying philosophy. Men and women are identical, but women are better. Wiping out all differences between men and women is a moral imperative, and all gender differences are socially constructed and are therefore unjust, and must be deconstructed so we can make and impose by force, if necessary, a brave new society. This is the uh, underlying philosophy between the second wave and the fe second wave feminism and fourth wave feminism and the transgenders. By the time we come to the early 2000s, we now have fourth-wave feminism. I'm going to bypass third-wave feminism because they argued about questions such as, is it empowering for a woman to dance on a pole or not? Um, as a father, I would say no, but some feminists argued yes. So we're going to skip through third-wave feminists because they argued about ridiculous topics like that to the modern wave, which is known as fourth-wave feminism. They argue for abolishing the alleged gender wage gap, the right to murder one's unborn child, abortion on demand, even partial birth abortion where the baby's coming out and you kill it on the way out, anti-sex discrimination, the evil villain of white patriarchy, the emasculation of men in society, gender fluidity, that means I can change, choose my gender by the minute, the resistance, full embrace of leftist anti-Christian ideology. They are courageously silent on the oppression of women in Islam. They never say a word about that. They embrace the full LGBTQI agenda. They fully support Planned Parenthood. And ironically, 
Uh, any, any woman that doesn't agree with the sisters on this, they are, they, are, they, are, they are attacked in social media and in the mass mainstream media. Ironic, given the very thing that feminists said they were fighting against was society forcing women to think and act in a certain way. Now the fourth wave feminists are themselves doing it to other women. There's a profound irony in this. Yet this sexual revolution is devouring its own children. Even within the modern feminist and LGBTQ movements, there are profound disagreements. When people talk about the LGBT community, they gloss over the fact that there are profound philosophical disagreements between the L's and the G's and the B's and the T's. They are fundamentally at odds with one another. If you are L or G, you rely on the fact that, that gender is a physical construct and it is immovable. A man loves a man, biologically. But if you are T, you say that the biological sex has nothing to do with your gender. And, and so, you know, I have a wife, she's a woman, um, I have a wife, and if I, we are a heterosexual couple, um, if I say tonight, tonight I'm now a woman, that means we are now a lesbian couple. Uh, in the morning, if she says that she's now a woman, we're back to heterosexual, and if I go back to male by tomorrow afternoon, now we're a, het a homosexual couple. Uh, what this implies is that with gender fluidity, sexual orientation is an infinitely variable thing, but the lesbians and the gays in the LGBTQ movement, they deny absolutely that you can have this fluidity of sexual orientation. It's fixed and it can never be changed. There are profound philosophical differences between the LGBTQ components of that, of that grouping. But even today, there are profound... Um, th these disagreements are being seen on the streets. If you ever go to a pride parade, if you do, good luck, but if you go to a pride parade, you will notice that there are feminists protesting in the pride parades. Why are feminists, lesbian feminists, protesting the pride parades? Because they say that a woman is a biological woman. And the transgenders in the pride parade are saying, no, a woman is a construct, it's not a biological reality. And so if a, if a woman who only wants to be with another woman, she says, I'm a lesbian, but then if a man comes along and says, I'm a woman as well, is she supposed to accept him as a woman or is she supposed to reject him? I mean, there are profound disagreements here. And so even today, you have second-wave feminists protesting what they call lesbo-erasure, the erasure of womanhood by the fourth-wave feminists and their transgender ideology. The LGBTQ movement is not this harmonious group of people. They are philosophically and profoundly opposed to one another. Many, many radical feminists today are bitterly opposed to the transgender movement. They do not want biological men to invade biological women's spaces such as shelters for battered women or, me or female sports. In response, as the totalitarian left does in American society, a new acronym has been born, TERF, it means T-E-R-F, that is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. If you're a TERF, um, count your blessings, I suppose, a TERF is an acronym meant to shut down debates, to marginalize the TERFs, just like the terms racist, homophobe, Islamophobe, misogynistic, and transphobic are also designed to shut down rational discussion. What does TERF mean? It means that I'm a woman who believes that a woman is defined by her biology, and I reject the idea that, that you can be a woman with a male body. And because these women reject the transgender ideology, they're now called TERFs, and they are routinely attacked by the fourth-wave feminists or the transgender ideologues. But there is a deeper contradiction yet. Transgender ideology, which, which considers gender to be fluid and socially constructed, undermines feminism, which advocates the advancement of women as a real and as essential gender category. The left can have transgenderism or feminism, but it cannot have both. Either women cannot be women, 
Either men cannot be women, or there is not such a thing as a woman. Either man and women are distinct categories, or, to quote Planned Parenthood, some women have a uterus. If some men have a uterus, that is, if some men are women, then what exactly is a woman? If there is no categorical distinction between man and woman, that is, if there is no real difference between the sexes, then what precisely is feminism? It's an excellent quote. In order to have transgenderism, you must eliminate the definition of woman and of man, and now we're all nothing. So why is this happening? Why are these, these fights happening? Well, um, you might say that in the theological world, uh, when we had higher criticism in the 1800s, um, mostly started in, in Germany and England, um, higher, critic, higher critics, they rejected the idea that Scripture is of God, that Scripture is uh, superintended by the Holy Spirit, that there is essential unity of Scripture, and they started slicing and dicing the Scriptures in what was known as source criticism. They abandoned the, the, the fundamental beliefs about Scripture and treated it like any other human document. Then you have source criticism. And because that ran into the, into the ground, then they came up with form criticism. And when form criticism ran its path, and then they realized that it had fatal contradictions, then people came up with redaction criticism. And these were the three major forms of higher criticism. And uh, when you came to the end of redaction criticism, you start out by denying at the beginning that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And uh, by the time you come to the end of redaction criticism, you come to the conclusion that maybe Moses did, and the Bible is right all along. And, and the, these, these attempts to live a life philosophically and intellectually away from God ultimately end up in defeat and confusion. And this is what is happening within the second, third, and fourth wave of feminism in American society today with the transgender movement. The further they go away from God, the more confusion that it results in, not just among our children, but among the ideologues themselves. In the sexual revolution, the terminology is always evolving. The ideology is changing by the week. The ideological demands are ever-changing. Yesterday's mand mandatory vocabulary becomes tomorrow's epithets. Yesterday's enlightenment becomes tomorrow's hate speech and bigotry. Yesterday's requirements of science, medicine, and justice and logic become tomorrow's suicide-inducing oppression. Honest researchers are being censored. World-famous medical professionals who help people overcome their transgender disorder are being destroyed around us in North America and in Canada. There are real cases where this, is, this has been happening. At its heart, though, the sexual revolution, including modern-day feminism, the transgender movement has nothing to do with medicinal psychology. It is a revolution against a society founded on biblical principles, a society founded on Judeo-Christian foundations. The sexual revolution rejects the biblical creation order of male and female in a loving and a complementary relationship, and it is an explicit rejection of God as creator and his revealed will for humanity. The end game for the sexual revolution is the complete removal of male and female distinctions from society and from the law, the replacement of biblical morality with personal subjective choice, the replacement of moral absolutes with moral relativism, and the replacement of an all-powerful creator with an all-powerful government as the supreme arbiter and enforcer of the new social order. And this is why the language that is used by social justice warriors is essentially a, a, a reincarnation of essential Marxism, that the government will take control of everything. And because the LGBTQ agenda is scientifically fraudulent, philosophically incoherent, and morally bankrupt, it only advances in American and Western society through massive compulsion. 
through Obama and the actions that he took before he left office and the modern progressive left and by the enormous social pressure and the unrelenting propaganda in our schools and in our media and even in the North American division at the teachers conference in August this year in Chicago our teachers were given a book that assumed multiple gender identities it never justified them it assumed multiple gender identities no evidence was given for the list of gender identities that that book in, can, can, contained the book was helpful because it emphasized that we need to love and have compassion for people but nowhere was there any discussion of the philosophical incoherence of the idea that there are multiple gender identities because taken to its logical conclusion if your sense of if your gender is your internal sense of who you are if there are seven and a half billion people on planet earth at this moment then how many gender identities are possible at any one time seven and a half billion there is no def definition of what is and what is not a gender identity as we all think of ourselves differently we can all claim our own gender identity and that is known as confusion and that is why we have male toilets and female toilets rather than seven and a half billion types of toilets ultimately the most famous example of the uh, sexual revolution was Marilyn Monroe this glamorous woman who lived the life who had full freedom yet she suffered incredibly she experienced profound personal brokenness she endured 12 abortions survived multiple assaults and abusive relationships and eventually was found dead committed suicide she is the symbol of the sexual revolution as a father of a young daughter I do not want that for my daughter as a husband of a wife I do not want that for my wife as a father of a son about to go to college maybe to Andrews I do not want my son to be marinated in this Marxist the theory that is being pushed in our colleges these days let's be clear about it that is what is happening we need to open our eyes brothers and sisters and realize that the neo-marxist anti-god politically correct ideologies of the sexual revolution modern just modern feminism social justice warriors and LGBTQ lobby are being explicitly discussed in an approving manner in front of our young people in our schools this is an abandonment of the gospel we are not producing educated young people we're producing political militants and we're turning them away from the Savior Jesus Christ I may not receive many thumbs up from people in our colleges for saying this but it's the truth so what do we say in conclusion today well for those of us who are experiencing the brokenness of sin as involuntary gender dysphoria I want to affirm from the Gospels today that Jesus died on Calvary for you that his grace is sufficient for you and that his forgiveness and healing power is sufficient for all who turn to him in repentance and in faith Jesus commanded that we love one another as he loved us and that means we not just love the individual but we also hold truth high as well we, we manifest grace and truth therefore we as brothers and sisters in this church we are called by God to minister lovingly and truthfully to those who are experiencing the confusion of gender dysphoria or claim that they are transgender and to prayerfully encourage them and stand with them and by them as they seek to overcome their profound personal discomfort as they go through the stages of life I have a few other things written down here but I won't our time is pressing and I'm aware that people are watching who want to pull me down 
So I'll bring it to a close here. I will say this. We have religious freedom in America today. Speak the truth, but speak it with grace. As you minister to somebody or walk beside them, love them as you would yourself. Treat them as you would be treated yourself. Never mock or humiliate or degrade, but recognize that when someone claims they are transgender, they're experiencing a level of profound brokenness and discomfort that maybe we will never experience ourselves. The suicide rates are horrendous. Before treatment and after the transition, it does not help the suicide rates. What people need is the healing power of the Good Shepherd, who alone can lead by still waters and green pastures. May we minister to people with hope, with kindness and compassion. We do not compromise on truth by ministering in love, but neither do we affirm people in their mental disorder, mental illness, for that is what it is. And uh, as we call people to follow Jesus, we ask him to do the work that only he can do in healing the brokenness of the human condition. May God bless us as we minister to those with uh, gender dysphoria in our midst. May may he give us words of wisdom at the right moment. May everything we say and do be tinged with the love of Jesus, who never looked on a crowd with anything other than compassion. For his name's sake, amen.
morning, Pastor Vine has uh, exposed some of the brokenness in the society around us, and which is often very close to home. And we need the Lord more than ever before today. And I invite you to make him a priority in your life today and this year. The Village Church is in the middle of 10 days of prayer right now. And at Pioneer Memorial this morning, Pastor Dwight is inviting their church to join our church tonight at 5 o'clock as we continue the 10 days of prayer. That is at 5 this evening instead of 625 as we've been doing the other nights. 10 days of prayer continues till Friday night. The Religious Liberty Sabbath be, uh, continues with a presentation in this room in 55 minutes, beginning at 2 p.m., so you will have to make lunch quickly, and I will invite Pastor Vine to include a blessing in his uh, benediction here on the food, and when you go to the line, if you're having lunch with us here, you can go straight to the line instead of straight to your tables like usual. Go straight to the line, and uh, we will take care of lunch, enjoy that together, and be back here for a continued discussion at 2 o'clock. Thank you. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, I thank you that you promise to respond to all who pray, give us this day our daily bread. Father, I thank you for the food that we are about to eat, for those who have prepared it. And with the strength it brings us, may we live lives that bring honor and glory to you and that grow your kingdom. Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, we will do so with an understanding of what is happening in our world around us. Father, may we indeed respond with grace and in truth to those who are struggling with the attacks of this world, who experience a profound personal sense of pain and disengagement. Father, I ask that each one of us will be the hands and the mouth of Jesus, leading such people in our midst to Jesus the Saviour, for whom no disease, no sickness, no ailment, no sin is beyond the reach of his graceful and healing touch. So, Father, bless us this week. May your angels watch over us. May your spirit empower us. May the love of Jesus shine through our eyes and be heard in our speech. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.